Whenever I write, I always try to imagine myself in a bar or a restaurant. What would I say out loud? If you can make the reader see the scene, that's when it comes alive. My blog went from maybe 100,000 monthly readers to like two and a half million. What's the lesson from that? I had studied a lot of copywriting, which turns out is extremely useful for any writer. I didn't realize that someone could write with that level of descriptiveness and it blew my head off. You have a hundred great ideas, but that doesn't mean you have a book. Tell me about how you met Will Smith. He wanted to do a memoir and he had known that for a while. Would you just hang out at the house? It is really hard to get more than an hour with Will Smith at any given time. Yeah. You were one of the guys who got me into online reading, which then got me into online writing. And it was because I read your dating blog in college. And actually, the thing that got me really excited was, oh my goodness, I don't know how to talk to girls. Here's a blog and I can actually learn how to do that. So it's just crazy to be here almost a decade later. And I realized that last night as I was prepping for this. It's funny actually how many, I don't want to call you guys like alum but like how many podcasters youtubers authors tech founders that i run into and they're like yeah i read your shit in college i was like i was all over your dating stuff when i was 19 and now they're 30 and crushing it dude i would just like go to my room and i'd be like you can learn this stuff like i don't know why but that was a crazy concept to me that i could learn practical skills by reading And I know that that sounds ridiculous, but if you think of that and compare it to school, school was all about literature. I was like, I'm not interested in this. And it was all about trying to memorize things. I was like, I'm not interested in this, but your blog was super practical. And I was like, yes, this is a problem that I have. And I realized that I could read to solve my problems, which was like a brain explosion. Yeah. That's honestly, that was the epiphany for me about five years before that, when I found Neil Strauss's The Game. It just, it's funny because I don't actually think most of the advice in that book is good. I think most of it's pretty bad, but (laughs) just the concept that you can actively improve and intentionally improve your social skills the same way you improve a basketball shot or uh, cooking. It was just such a profound realization. It was absolutely life-changing. Tell me about this idea that you like writing about implementation rather than theory. Um. It's funny because I feel like I've gone back and forth over the years and it's, it's, it's tough because in my market, which is personal development, personal growth, you can't really succeed with one and, and not the other. Hmm. Like you can read and understand all the things all the time. Like you can learn a million things about how to have a better life, but if you're still sitting on your couch playing video games all day, like none of it really matters. So you need to get out into the world and actually try to do stuff. But if you're just going out and doing stuff and don't have the theoretical knowledge or framework to to interpret and process your experiences, then that's also not really going to work. And so there, it's kind of this weird marriage between the two. And I think earlier in my career, I was very focused. I thought the theories and the frameworks were bad. And so a lot of that, a lot of my effort at that time was improving upon those. And I think as time has gone on, or at least I'd say the last three or four years, I'm much more focused on, okay, how do you actually make this stuff work? Like, how do you actually get somebody from reading 10 books and understanding everything in them to actually get off the couch and go do the thing? And that's, in a lot of ways, that's a more complicated issue. 
you read a lot of philosophy when you were in high school. It seemed like you were like at all-star level reading difficulty in mm -hmm. high school. What was that philosophy and what were you trying to work through? <laughs> I tried. I don't know if I like successfully processed everything I was reading, but I generally found school boring hmm. and I also, so I grew up in a, in a pretty conservative and religious part of the country. But yeah, I mean, my, my family is not, they're great people, not super strong communicators and, and, and bad with emotions. Yeah. Right. So I grew up in that environment, just in a family of like people who didn't really share how they felt or process how they felt. And um, and then the, the wider culture around me was very, very conservative, very Christian, um, which I didn't fit into. I realized at a pretty early age that I didn't fit into that. And so I think the combination of that and the combination of my family environment, it just made me very introspective and very curious about motivations and why do people do the things they do? You know, I would see my parents behave one way at church and then they'd come home and behave a completely different way. And I was like, that's weird. Yeah. You know, why are you doing that? And, and trying to figure those sorts of things out. And then I think there was just this craving for intellectual challenge. And so I, I got very interested in philosophy at an early age. I read a lot of Nietzsche. Uh, I got it to like Anton LaVey, who was like the church of, of Satan guy from the okay. 60s yeah it, it's that's a whole i don't necessarily recommend it but at the time it was really exciting and felt like super um uh interesting um i read all Ayn rand stuff in high school uh it was pretty pretty impactful at that time mm -hmm. um and it, it i don't know how much of it stuck i think it just kind of it got me exposure to a lot of that stuff at an early age what was the first book that you were just like, wow, reading is something I really enjoy and I might actually want to start writing? I think those are two very different things. Oh, interesting. Yeah, very, very different things. I didn't really want to become a writer until I was like 28, mm -hmm. 27, 28. Um, I really fell in love with reading probably like middle school. Okay. I remember I read Stephen King's It. Okay. And- I remember when I started it, I think it was sixth grade maybe. I remember when I started it, because it's 1,100 pages. And I remember when I started it, I, I thought this was it was just completely insurmountable. And I finished it in a few months. And I remember just being so blown away that it had given me that many like days and hours of enjoyment over that amount of time. So I read a lot of Stephen King. I read a lot of Michael Crichton's books mm. in, in middle school and like early high school. Uh I just really loved it. It reading was always. It's funny. My Amazon account goes all the way back to I think 1998. <laughs> so it's it's every once in a while I'll like dig into my prior orders. Like I can go back and see the books I ordered in high school, and uh, that's always fun. That was back when Jeff Bezos was packing books himself. Yeah, it's funny. I read Bezos's um, or the biography. The I forget what the the Everything Store. That's so good. Yeah, I read that like a year or two ago, and it was funny. I was reading about all the things they were doing in the '90s, and I was like, "Wait a second, I was like one of those first two million customers or something." Like high school Mark, like sitting on a, on his computer in his bedroom, uh, ordering books. I remember I I memorized my parents' credit card number, um, 
and I would buy, initially I bought music. I, I memorized it so I could buy CDs that had the parental warning label without okay. them knowing. And, uh, and then I would always be like, oh, I bought this CD uh, and I'd like pay them back. But then they figured out I was doing that and they got mad. So I was like, and after that, I figured out if I ordered books, they wouldn't get mad. Right. So I could order as many books as I want. You're a big Nine Inch Nails guy? Yeah. 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 I was big Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson actually got me into the philosophy. Okay. So he was the, the entry point because his message was very much like if you grow all basically all the disgruntled kids like me in middle America, he was like, you don't have to believe the shit you're taught growing up. You can go read other things. Here are some things you can go read. Mm -hmm. And that's that was kind of how I got started. So the writing big bang, so to speak, seems to be David Foster Wallace, a yeah. supposedly fun thing and never do again. So yes. tell me about your experience reading that. So first of all, I wrote for a long time before I ever considered it a career or to me, it was just a hobby. And that was online writing. Yeah. I mean, initially when I was, say, in college or whatever, and this is, I, I think the reason for this is I got bad grades in writing all through school. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I was so bad at writing. <laughs> just... I couldn't spell. <laughs> it was terrible. For me, it was grammar. I would yeah. just like mess up all the grammar. Dude, in second grade, God bless her, but Miss Strowey didn't let me go to recess because I couldn't spell because four straight weeks. I got it wrong on the spelling <laughs> test. B-E-C-A-U-S-E. -E. And it was the most fun year because yeah. we were redoing the school. So we had all these modules and being able to go through the modules made it so fun to play tag. Yeah. And so we didn't do kickball that year. We did tag. And I still, it's been 20 years or something. And I'm still so mad that <laughs> I missed those things on the spelling test. Well, it's because... <laughs> you couldn't spell. Yeah, I. Uh, so I used to write on forums a lot when I was young, and I was that obnoxious guy who, you know, if somebody disagreed with me, I would write three pages explaining bullet point by bullet point why they were wrong, yeah. and that was just like my idea of a fun thing to do on a Saturday. And then when I started my internet businesses. I started blogging because that's how you got traffic back then is you had the blog and it never even occurred to me that that was actually the better career path until I was maybe like two years in. And then it was around that time that I, I was first exposed to David Foster Wallace. I was first exposed to his, uh, this is water okay. commencement speech. Loved it. Still to this day, one of the, my favorite things ever. Read it a bunch of times. I was like, God, this guy's so wise. Like, I have to go read his stuff. And so I got online, did a little bit of research, and uh, people raved about his nonfiction essays. And I was like, Well, that's cool. I, I write nonfiction essays. I'll check it out. Yeah. And I bought a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. The title piece of that book is the story behind it's actually pretty funny. So Wallace was like a pretty depressive guy. And he was just kind of this like, I don't know, like a turd in the punch bowl everywhere he went. And his his editors, like they they they're I think Carnival Cruises or something, like approached Harper's magazine. They wanted they wanted a piece done on like their new cruise line. And the editors thought it'd be really funny to send David on the cruise line. So they're like, Yeah, this is like the one guy who's gonna hate every second of it. But he's so smart and we just wanna see what he's gonna write. And so he he wrote a whole piece about it. And that that piece was so unbelievably insightful, observant, 
thoughtful, funny. Like he he would go on the I remember there's one part of that essay where he's talking about the dining room seating arrangement. Yeah. And he compared it to the Cold War geopolitics <laughs> of the Balkans. And it made sense and it was funny. And I was like, this guy is just on a completely different level. Totally different level. And I think I read, I mean, at this point, I think I've read all of his nonfiction multiple times. What I love about David Foster Wallace, because I also love that essay, is the way that he can take the most specific things and just take them to the furthest end. Yeah. Like in that piece, he has, he goes on this rant about how if you leave the room for 29 minutes, no one touches your room, no one does anything. But if you leave for 31 minutes, they somehow know <laughs> that they can clean your room and you'll come back and everything will be perfectly done. Yeah. The pillows will be perfectly folded, the towels all in the perfect place, the chocolate on your bed. And he'll spend, you know, like 800 words of extreme descriptiveness about how do they do this? And you can just tell he's going crazy in his brain. Yeah. And I had the same thing. I didn't realize that someone could write with that level of descriptiveness and it blew my head off. Yeah. It it was incredibly inspiring. And so that book was the moment that I was like, I want to do this. I want to be able to give people this feeling. Uh, and And I... At that point, too, the way my business, my, my online business was going was uh, the blog was doing well and everything else was doing terribly. So I was like, apparently the only thing I'm good at is blogging. So I might as well take a stab at just being a lighter. For was that a hard shift for you? No, it felt amazing, actually. Hmm. Like it, because the, the marketing side and the sales side and the business strategy side, like that, that, those things never came naturally to me and, and I was constantly trying to learn them and understand them and get good enough at them. Whereas the writing came completely natural. You know, like writing a blog post for my business back then was the fun part. That was the play. Everything else was the work. And I think I, I was making the same mistake that a lot of people make, which is not realizing that the thing that feels like play is actually the thing you should be doing all the time. Amen. Whereas... I was like, well, no, it's it's the work. That's what's going to make me money. And I think once I shifted, once I actually took that leap and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to focus really, really hard on becoming the best writer I can. Uh, that the results immediately, you know, my audience immediately like 3X'd or something in the next few months. And I was like, oh, okay, this this makes sense now. When you thought about what you were going to write about, did you focus on, hey, this sounds interesting. I'm just going to write about whatever. Or were you like, this is my strategy. I'm going to focus on this. Did you have any feelings like, of this is what I'm supposed to write about and trying to fight that? What was that like for you? Um, to me, there's kind of like a Venn diagram in my head of one circle is what the audience wants to hear. One circle is what I'm excited to write about. And then I guess one circle is what's good for the brand yeah for lack of a better word and i try to look for the intersection of all those things obviously it's a moving target over time but i always if i if i ever sacrifice the other two for one it's always writing something for me hmm. like i i've always made sure that every once in a while maybe a couple times a year if there's one thing that's just like I really need to talk about and I know nobody's going to care and I know people are going to be like, what the fuck, Mark? Why, why are you doing it? 
just let let one of those go a year. What's an example of that? Um, every once in a while, these days that you, I usually put it on like Twitter or something. But every once in a while, like I'll write about video games, and I know nobody cares about video games. Or I'll write about music. No, nobody in my audience. It's so funny because I I love heavy metal, and I'd say two, three times over the last five years, I've like written a long thing about heavy metal music and it, it just gets crickets. But then there's like the 10 people in my fan base who are huge metal heads and they're like, oh my God, this is also cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just think it's it's good as a creative person. You need to, to like let that out occasionally. Like don't let it build up too much. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're so perceptive with the brand stuff. It's interesting that you said earlier that, hey, the marketing stuff didn't come naturally to me because when I look at the arc of your career, you've been in so many different lanes. You've been the internet blogger guy, then you were were writing about how to pick up women, and then you sort of went into stoicism meets, you know, the F word and writing books about that. Now you're working on a movie. Like, I just feel like you've been in so many different places for a writer in such a short amount of time. Yeah. And that requires intentionality and really deliberate thought. Yeah. I mean, I would love to say every bit of that was intentional and and premeditated, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it is just kind of, you see an opportunity show up. And you're like, well, fuck it. Let's just, let's see where this goes. Yeah. And then you kind of try to make sense of it afterwards. You're like, well, all right, this thing turned out a little bit weird, but if we put orange on it and put fuck in the title, then it makes sense. Like then the audience will be able to understand what it is. And that cool splash thing in the title. (laughs) Yeah. But all that stuff happens on accident. Like that splat. uh, So Harper sent me the cover for Subtle Art and originally it was just an asterisk. And I was like, this is so boring. And so I actually put it in Photoshop and I started like testing a bunch of different things there. Cause I, I told him, I was like, we need something like iconic and like, like something easily identifiable that's like mine. Yeah. And of course, the people at Harper don't think about that stuff. They're, they've got 20 other book covers to worry about. So I put it in Photoshop, started messing with it. And I, I found that splat. I was like, oh, this is perfect. And I think I was on an airplane. And, you know, eight years later, it's, it's literally on everything I do now because it's just become associated with me. So it's like, I feel like a lot of brand, like smart brand decisions is just a matter of trying stuff, seeing what works, and then just doing it again. When you talk about what works, you said I was testing things. Were you testing like, hey, let me show my friends, see what they think. Were you running A-B tests? Were you just like playing around in your living room being like, oh, that looks cool. That looks cooler. I'm going to go with that. It was, I think I tried three or four different variations. I think I found like three versions I liked, but the splat was my favorite. And then I sent that to like my agent, my editor, maybe showed it to my team. And everybody was like, the splat's it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah, that's how I feel too. So yeah, it's some combo of personal taste and, you know, it's kind of like concentric circles. You know, it's like in the, in the center, you got to be super excited about it. Like, don't let anything, if you're not excited about something, don't show it to a single person. I love that. You got to be excited about it first. Then there's kind of a, a, a small circle of trusted confidants around you, mm-hmm. right? So your partner, your best friend, maybe a couple employees who you trust, 
uh, your agent, your editor, right? You get their opinion. Then maybe you you show it to a couple fans, friends of friends, send it to my dad or something like if you need a, a few more opinions and then you kind of audience test it. What was the transition from internet fame to mainstream fame like? Uh, really just getting recognized on the street. Actually, it's funny because <laughs> internet fame is weird because you're, you're basically not famous except in very specific rooms. Right. Right. So it's, it's, I would be just an anonymous person for eight months and then I'd go to a conference and I'd get mobbed. Yep. And I'm like, this is super weird and stressful. Whereas being like mainstream famous, you're just moderately recognizable everywhere you go, mm -hmm. you know? So you'll get like stopped at a restaurant or on the street once a week or something. And it's very polite. It's very nice. Because uh, I think there's like mainstream fame. There, there's more of an understanding of like you have your own life and and I'm not going to bother you. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think when you're kind of internet famous, uh, all the other people who are doing things on the internet feel like, you know, like what's your blog strategy? You know, what are your top three tips to grow an audience on Twitter? I'm like, I don't know, dude. Like I'm just trying to get a sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also your writing back then when you were internet famous was so personal. I mean, that was the thing that I think really captivated me. Mm -hmm. I felt like we were just hanging out. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. I didn't really realize that writing could do that. It was so friendly. Yeah. That's something I feel like a, a certain level of fame and success kind of steals that from you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's funny. I've heard, I forget where I heard like, I, I think uh, some comedy documentary, it was a bunch of comedians sitting around talking about that, how when you're starting out, everybody in the audience knows you're one of them. You're just a normal dude who's like stuck in traffic and his car broke down and, and it's all very believable. Right. And they were talking about how like, yeah, once you're like Jerry Seinfeld, you can't really complain about your car breaking down because everybody knows you don't drive yourself anywhere and you know, or, or it's, there's a relatability that you have to fight for. Exactly. And so it's on my Gulf stream. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I was flying first class. Let me just tell you what the worst thing yeah. about flying first class. <laughs> Everyone's like, dude, no one wants to hear no, it. Nobody wants to hear it. And so uh, that's something that I, I lament sometimes because I, I recognize that my personal life is no longer that relatable and, for most people. And, and I don't really get to talk about it as much. What was the moment when you realized that your first book was going to be huge? It took a couple years. Oh, wow. Um, so first of all, it was a slow burn leading up. So it it came out, it had a, it had a decent launch. It debuted in number six on the New York Times. I think hung around for a couple of weeks and then fell off. And it fell off for a few months. And it blew up on Audible first, became number one on Audible. And then that start, started to transfer over to hardcover sales. So it was around like month four or five, it came back onto the New York Times list and started climbing. And that whole time, I was just like, oh, this is really cool. I wonder how long it's going to last. And then over the next six months, it hit number one. And then it stayed at number one for like a year straight. Jeez. And every week, I was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder how long this is going to last. 
And then like three years went by. I think actually it was it was still on the list like a week or two ago. And I mean, obviously it's it's finally kind of come down the other side of that. But yeah, it was like two years that I finally realized I'm like, oh, this is going to last. Like this is going to last a long time. I think up until that point, I was just kind of like, oh, cool. I caught another lucky break. Um, it hit number one in India. Wow, that's really lucky. Like, I wonder how long that's going to last. And I, it just, it took a long, I think it was such a, the, the gap between my previous life and expectations for the book and like what it actually hit was just so vast that it, it took multiple years of evidence accumulation for my understanding of it to actually catch up with reality. When you were working on the audiobook, what did you have in mind? Because I've been listening to the audiobook, but what I've heard is it's so personable and friendly and it just feels like you're talking to a friend. I'm so I'm laughing because the audiobook was a complete afterthought. What? First of all, shout out to Roger Wayne, mm -hmm. wherever you are. Um, <laughs> still never met him. I need to like buy him a beer or something. So back then, this was, keep in mind, I submitted that draft in 2015. So Audible mm -hmm. in 2015 is not what it is today. Audiobooks are massive today. Like they, they went through this huge growth curve. And I was very fortunate in that I rode a lot of that growth curve. So back in 2015, nobody really thought a whole lot about audiobooks. And there was zero pressure for me to read it myself, zero expectation. Authors didn't really read their own books back then. And so the only thought or decision that went into that was Harper sent me an email with audio clips of three different narrators. And they said, which one do you like best? And I listened to all three and they all sounded cheesy as shit. And I was like, I don't like any of them. Whoever does this book, it needs to be like very dry, deadpan, it needs to sound like kind of like a tipsy dude at a bar. Yeah. And they're like, okay. So they left. They came back with like four other options. Went through them. It's like, I don't like these either. They're like, okay. Left, came back like five options. Finally get to like the end of that list. And it's this guy, Roger Wayne. I listen, I click on the audio. I listen to maybe five seconds of him reading something. I'm like, ah, that's the guy. Use him. And mm. they're like, great. Glad, glad we figured it out. Didn't think about it for six months. Book comes out or the book got announced and all the pre-orders are going on. And I started getting emails from fans and they're, they start asking me, hey, I'm really excited about your new book. I pre-ordered the audio book, but I looked and it's narrated by the romance novel guy. I was like, what? And so I go to Audible, I find Roger Wayne's name, I click on it, and his entire <laughs> back catalog is nothing but romance novels. I was like, what the fuck? I was like, oh shit, what have I done? <laughs> anyway, he crushed it, like hit it out of the park, nailed it so hard. I, I like, like I said, I've never met him. Thank you, Roger Wayne, wherever you are. <laughs> um, yeah, completely. But it's funny because it's maybe it's better I didn't know. I didn't look at anybody's back history. Like I just listened to the voice and I was like, that's the voice I hear in my head. That's who we're going with. Yeah. And how was your writing different for the Audible original versus the books? How did you think about 
that project. For Love Is Not Enough? Yeah. My Audible book, Love Is Not Enough, it's based on, I basically coached people through relationship problems over the course of six months. We recorded all the conversations and then I, we took the conversations and I kind of built a book around it. Mm -hmm. So the conversations are the implementation part, right? It's a woman comes in, she's got a few more dates with the guy that we talked about last time. It's gone horribly. Mm -hmm. They've broken up. We talk about it. And then we kind of cut away to my, to the theory, right? Where I explain, this is what boundaries are. This is why this didn't work. This is why she feels this way. Um, so it's kind of that flipping back and forth. It, I'm very satisfied with how that came out, but the amount of work that went into it, I vastly underestimated how much time and work it would take to go into it. I think we we overestimated how much the conversations by themselves could carry it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I underestimated how much of, of actual writing I would have to do over the top of it. Right. Um, so yeah, it was a very complicated project. What's the lesson from that? The lesson from that, I guess, was uh, don't underestimate a new medium, hmm. which I've done consistently. Or <laughs> uh, crushing it on YouTube. Yeah. Well, that's another medium I've I've underestimated the the difficulty of um just looking back i you know in my head i was like you know if if i just have a lot of conversations with these people there's gonna be a lot of great moments that come up which is true but just because you have a lot of great moments doesn't mean you have a book it's the same way like writing a book you have a hundred great ideas but that doesn't mean you have a book like you still have to make those ideas make sense and organize them in a cohesive way that everything flows and it impacts the reader significantly. That's really hard. And I think in some ways, the fact that it was organic conversation and with completely different people and having like find what the common threads between everything was, um, definitely worked a lot of muscles I wasn't really used to working. Let's follow the organization, the structure route. So you start in Scrivener. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that process and why you use that tool. Uh, I started using Scrivener when I wrote Subtle Art and I think I was just, I think like most writers, you know, you get stuck one day and you're like, you know what I need? I need a new piece of software. Of course. That's going to solve all my problems. (laughs) You need a tool, you know. My writing's not good. It's like using the wrong laptop. Exactly. Drinking the wrong kind of coffee. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, so I think like a lot of writers, I started doing research on what was out there and I found Scrivener and it looked super, super cool. And I think, too, I think every time you write a book, there's always this phase very early on at the very, towards the very beginning that's, it's like I just said, you have 100 great ideas, but you don't necessarily have a book. And so you have to figure out, okay, which, which of these ideas is going to survive and how do we put them together? And I, I like Scrivener's organizational structure. Like, it's, it seems very designed to be able to to move around the structure of a book very easily so if you have it one day you wake up and you realize like oh chapter six should actually be chapter two but this one story should stay in chapter six Mm -hmm. and it scrivener that becomes extremely easy whereas in word or google docs you'll spend three hours cutting and copying and pasting and moving stuff around so i found that very useful 
for the early stages of a book. Once you get later in the process, I find Scrivener less useful just because the the formatting tools aren't super great. They're not they're not as good as Word or, or Google Docs. Um, so if you want to like refine something and make it look really nice on the page and make it flow super well, um, I don't find it as useful for that. So I, I do Scrivener for kind of first draft or, or organizational stage of the book, and then once I've got everything roughly in order and I just want to refine and and polish and revise, then I move everything over to a Word doc. And the whole publishing industry still operates on Word documents, hmm. for better or worse. Uh, so you you kind of need to end up in a Word document eventually anyway. Yeah. So uh, that I just make I make the switch over at that point. What do you feel is the linchpin for your writing? Do you feel like it's a really good one-liner? You think it's like a really good opening sentence, a concluding sentence? You think it's like the right structure and the right flow, good transitions? I don't know. I mean, there might be a linchpin. I don't know if I know what it is. I guess I would say it's it is the quality of the idea. I have found that if an idea is very strong, it's easy. Like the stronger the idea, the easier it is to write. Totally. And the weaker the idea, the harder it is to write. And that includes any story you produce to back up that idea. And I think as as writers, it's very easy to convince ourselves like, well, I worked so hard on this section it must be a really good section. And it's like, well, no, you probably worked really hard on it because it's the worst section. Interesting. And that that is a lesson that it's taken me a long time to figure out. But looking back, I really do think it's, if if the idea is not strong, there's no amount of quality writing is going to save it. You could probably get a bad idea to like a mediocre passage, but you're never going to make it a great passage. Whereas if you have a great idea, it's almost hard to fuck it up. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that the stuff that I write best is either, is either the stuff that took the least amount of work to write and it just flowed mm-hmm. or took the most amount of work and I did a bunch of research. I spent years thinking about it and I literally know more about that yes. than anybody else. Like that happened for me. I wrote a piece about Peter Thiel and how his investing framework was based on Christian ideas. Yeah. And I had been researching Peter for years and I'd just been really interested in him. And then I went down the whole rabbit hole of this guy named Rene Girard, who's his professor at Stanford. And then I got to a super crisp little thesis and structure for it. But it was one of those things I just researched and researched and researched. And what I always look for is I'd go out to dinner and I'd be like talking through the piece and I find for these longer form pieces, when I'm talking about something and every single time people's eyes are opening, wow, I've never heard that before. I'm like, all right, I'm on to something there. Like that's when yeah. I really have it. And I just think the barbell is super interesting because, ah, this is like mildly difficult. It's not really flowing, like never works. It's yeah. always the easy stuff and the stuff I slaved away on. Yeah, that makes sense. That That rings true for me as well. What's interesting is, you're talking about the structure with the books, but early on, it seems like when you were writing your articles, it was the headline. You would find that headline, that was like half the work. And so let's talk about that because I felt like you would find that and then you would, you would click and roar. And it seems like you got a Google Doc of different articles that you were thinking through. Yeah, I, I think a large part, so my career or my blog really took off like 2012 early 2013. Was that like the Facebook era when that's when things were really yeah. going? Yeah. 
So Facebook launched its newsfeed in 2011. And it was, we know now that it was highly prioritizing links to publish content because at the time, Facebook's strategy was it basically wanted to replace newspapers <laughs> uh, or it wanted to be the world's homepage, right? So it, it, it wanted to be anything you wanted to read that day. Fa- you, Facebook wanted it so that you could just go to Facebook and everything would be. The answer is in the name, the news feed. Yes. That's not what intuitively you wouldn't say, oh, you're going to end up with pictures of babies, yes. family updates, work updates. The news feed, I think, says everything. Yeah. So basically, Facebook was trying to cannibalize all the newspapers and magazines, all of their traffic. And and it worked. And so they were the algorithm was highly weighting links to published content. I think I figured that out before most people. Because I noticed that there were there were a couple there like BuzzFeed started around this time. I think they figured it out around the same time. There was a a, a publication called Upworthy. That figured out the same thing. And so I was watching them and I'm like, what are they doing? And I had studied, you know, so back when I was like working on the marketing and sales and stuff, I had studied a lot of copywriting, which turns out is extremely useful for any writer. Uh, But I was looking at at publications like BuzzFeed and Upworthy and I'm like, they're just taking copywriting, like direct sales copywriting principles and applying them to Facebook's newsfeed to like generate clicks. I was like, that's really smart. And so I started experimenting with the same thing and spending a lot of time on the title and then the image that would pop up underneath the article. And I found that if you could have a killer title and a really good image, you could go viral pretty easily on Facebook. And so I think from that period of like 2012 through early 2015, uh, my blog went from maybe a hundred thousand monthly readers to like two and a half million, just like twenty-five X through the roof. And that's where I really refined that that skill of and realizing too that you don't necessarily because before that it was always about the idea. It was like, okay, what's a really cool idea that I could write about for in a thousand or two thousand words? Mm-hmm. After that, it was like, okay, what are really good titles? Because if I find the title, then I can go find and research and and figure out what content's gonna like justify that 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 title. Mm-hmm. Funny thing is that YouTubers do the same thing today. They start with the title and thumbnail, then they go write the video. Mm-hmm. And how did SEO factor into it? I always sucked at SEO. <laughs> <laughs> is it that you didn't care? You weren't good at it? No, I tried. I really tried. Okay, and and I was just bad. Uh, Going, getting good at going viral. Uh, so around the same time, Google started looking to social media indicators and started weighting those very heavily in Google's algorithm. So any SEO success, not any, but I'd say like 80, 90% of the SEO success that I've generated, it just happened as a side effect of being able to go viral on social media for yeah. those three or four years. Right. That generated all the backlinks. It got all the comments. It got all the the whatever, the mentions. And uh, that got me rated highly in Google's out. Well, I was talking to our friend Taylor Pearson, who was in a writing group mm-hmm. with you in New York. And I want to hear about this writing group. But one of the things I said, yeah, what what is Mark really, really good at? Mm-hmm. And he goes, that guy has this 
pulse on the zeitgeist like no one I've ever met and is really good at inserting himself into that jet stream. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Is it natural? Is it something you think about? Well, that's a really nice call for thanks, Taylor. <laughs> um, I do feel, you know, that the, the adoption curve, like yeah, the early adopter. Across curve. the chasm. I, I, I have found... I've noticed that I am consistently an early adopter on like kind of cultural or like social dimensions, yeah. right? So it's, I've consistently found throughout my life that like I will get really into a topic or a platform or a piece of technology and I'll be like, oh, this is so cool. Why don't more people use this? And then like three years later, everybody's using it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh shit, I should have kept doing that, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, I think it's it's taken me a long time to trust my conviction in those things. I don't know how much of that is conscious. My personality is such I get bored very easily hmm. and I think I see I see patterns very easily. Like I I see uh so for instance if you take like conventional traditional media right now, like conventional Hollywood entertainment. Yeah. I'm so fucking bored with it. Like sure. like have been bored with it for years now. I've been ranting. Anybody who follows me knows I've been fucking ranting about superhero movies for like five years now, telling people to stop watching them. And in the beginning, like five years ago, I felt like a man on an island, like a crazy man right. uh, standing on a street corner, like screaming like the end is near. And <laughs> and I feel like that tide is turning, right? Like we're, we're watching traditional media just bleed out slowly and all the eyeballs are moving to online content mm -hmm. and that felt like a crazy idea a few years ago but it's now i think it's like smart people know that and i think in probably two or three years it's going to be conventional my intuitive tracker on this is you go to the front shelf at a bookstore you look at the non-fiction books mm. what percentage of those people started off as bloggers mm. and a few years ago it was like 10 percent of books now it's up to like 30 yeah it's getting more and more and that's just my my one data point where I track this. And then also if I'm at the pool and I see people reading, yeah. how many of those people started off on the internet and it's going higher and higher. Oh, yeah. And I think we're going to start seeing that in other mediums as well. We mm. see that in, in podcasts and in, it's crazy. It's still like less than half of the United States listens to podcasts, which is bananas. Concerned after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it's absolutely bananas considering like the cultural clout and and impact that podcasts have and i think the same thing's about to happen with like youtube and tiktok or it's it's starting to happen with youtube and tiktok anyway i think part of it is just i get bored quick and i get excited about new things easily mm -hmm. and so i think that just naturally pushes me towards the edge of that adoption curve in every dimension and it does good things for me sometimes and then other times it makes me do stupid things like buying a ton of crypto five years ago and and like getting into i don't know like crazy new platforms that don't go anywhere they just die so it's it's you kind of like live by the sword die by the sword yeah i feel like the subtle art was your transition from talking about dating and relationships into stoicism but really fun mm -hmm. is that fair sure you could call it that the internally the way I kind of experienced that transition was the dating stuff got very repetitive hmm. because 
I mean, there's only so many articles you can write about like how to have a great first date yeah. before you just repeat it yourself. Right. And, um, and what I started to notice with readers and all the emails I got was, you know, people would email me and they'd be like, I've got this, this problem, you know, no girl likes me, blah, blah, blah. And I would start talking to them and I realized that, yeah, the problem isn't you don't know how to text them or don't know how to ask them out. Like the problem is you have no self-esteem, you have no identity, you still live with your mom. Like, right. <laughs> no job. Yeah. Like no wonder you can't get a date. And I started to recognize that there's not really such thing as a dating problem. There are personal problems that manifest themselves in your dating relationship. Sure. And so more and more of my content was about those emotional issues and psychological issues, lifestyle issues, that it reached a point around 2012 that, that I was like, I'm basically just writing self-help and calling myself a men's dating coach. Why don't I just call myself a personal development coach or author or whatever? And so I made that brand switch in 2013 and it, it just immediately opened the floodgates uh, to a new audience. So to me, it was just a continuation. And then once I was in the self-help world, it's funny because I, I had never had much exposure to stoicism uh, until after subtle art. But once I was in the self-help world, I I myself had been a, a, a an ardent consumer of self-help since my teenage years. And I had grown very frustrated and disillusioned with it. Mm. I found it very impractical and and just like almost narcissistic in a lot of ways. And so I, I, I figured I'm like, you know, if I'm, if I'm in this world, I might as well say the things that I've always wished somebody would say, but nobody has. And that's when I started writing articles, like stop trying to be happy. Um, you know, choose your such a good title. <laughs> All my, my body just like swelled with interest for that piece. That's yeah. such a good title. Yeah. Um, Choose your struggles. Um, you are not special. Uh, I, I just like had a whole string of them. And it's just like people started eating that up. I found that my gener it was one of those things that I think most of my generation felt, but we didn't really have anybody saying it. Yeah. And so when I started speaking up and saying it, everybody was like, ah, yes, totally. this is what we've all been feeling. Um, and then it was... It wasn't until later that uh, I started getting all the stoicism comparisons. And I was like, oh, yeah, it is fairly stoic. Interesting. Tell me about this process of developing your own style. That is something that is super distinct about you. Is that something that you cultivated intentionally or something that just sort of emerged? To me, writing is not fun if I don't sound like myself. Hmm. And if, I, if I'm trying to sound like somebody else, which occasionally I, I fall into that, like everybody does, that's when it starts feeling like work, right? And I have to almost stop and remind myself like, oh, yeah, you hate this chapter because this isn't you. This is you, this is you trying to impress somebody. So delete that. Let's, let's start again and let's write it as you. And I always try to imagine, when whenever I write, I always try to imagine myself in a bar or restaurant with a friend and they've just asked me the question that leans into the Shall I answer that? And it's like, how, like word for word, what would I say out loud? And uh, 
it's funny actually one of my one star reviews on amazon like i think the top up the top upvoted one star review on amazon of subtle art um compares me to uh a drunk uh a drunk guy lecturing lecturing somebody about their life at 2 a.m. in a bar after the lights have come on. And, and I was like, yeah, that's totally it. It's funny because that's sort of like your description for the guy who you wanted to read your audio book. Yeah. Because you yes. are tipsy. Yes. And it, it, it is funny that I, I guess that this is something I haven't really thought about before, but I'm totally fine being criticized for achieving the thing that I want to achieve. Like I remember my, my favorite, um, my favorite criticism that I've ever gotten in the press so the the Sunday Times in London trashed my second book, and the guy he was like a re- reviewed by like an eighty year old guy, and and he he wrote Manson is like the local drunk who spent too much time in the philosophy section, and I was like, yes, he gets it, he gets it. <laughs> I was reading philosophy books when I was fourteen years old. I was like, that's exactly who I am, and you know he meant it pejoratively, but I was like, no, fuck yeah, that's exactly, and that's why people read me like. That's the guy they want to hear from. (laughs) So Miles Davis has a quote, a jazz musician. He says, it takes a long time to be able to play like yourself. Mm. And I think that's incredibly insightful. Yeah. Because I think that you're like, intuitively, you're like, oh, just be yourself. But when you start off and you're just trying to be yourself, it's contrived. It's a little weird. It's actually like, hard to be yourself mm-hmm. and i feel like a lot of the process of getting good at speaking getting good at making youtube videos getting good at writing is actually trying on other people's masks and trying to figure out what's working here what's not working here sure and almost by trying on imitating what other people are doing you then find what's actually you and i find that there's a very different version of you being yourself at the beginning yeah. and a very different version of you being yourself later on and I find that it's like the masks need to be put on and then you need to have them evaporate. And only then can you really be yourself. I agree with that. I, I feel like there's kind of an awkward teenage phase Yeah, with any creative pursuit where you have to try to fit in with a, a bunch of different crowds and then be dissatisfied with that. And before you finally get down to like, okay, whoa, whoa. What's that? What's the way of expressing myself that I actually care about? Because you're going to get ridiculed no matter which way you go. So you might as well get ridiculed for being who you actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've given advice to read books, not blogs. And I just see this with just students that I work with all the time. They're so swept up in the zeitgeist. Yeah. And they're trying to like live in the zeitgeist to find new ideas, but then they just become the zeitgeist. Like through osmosis, they just absorb what everybody else is thinking. And then they're like, David, I'm reading a bunch just like what you said, but I don't have any cool new ideas. And it's like, hold on, get out of the blogosphere, read books, stop reading the news. Like Murakami is a great quote. If you read what everybody else is reading, you'll think what everybody else is thinking. I also think it's really good to read outside of your your lane for lack of a better term because that's i find that's where actually a lot of the most interesting because your mind will naturally start drawing analogies and metaphors for your own subject of work right like i love reading fiction and i love reading things like economics or 
uh, history, because it's you can get ideas from those fields that I'll then ask myself, like, oh, what would the psychological version of this be? Like, here's this dynamic that plays out across societies and markets. How would that play out, like, within somebody's own mind with aspects of their identity? Maybe there's a market-based system inside our minds where different aspects of our identity are, like, trading self-esteem. To, you know, like, does that go anywhere? And that just takes you into... uh Something that's actually creative. <laughs> it's those fire <laughs> metaphors. You were talking about David Foster Wallace and the dinner table with yeah. what Balkan geopolitics. Yes. And it's invigorating as a writer to realize that. Yeah. And it's invigorating as a reader to yeah. see it done so well. Yeah. I think people lose sight of, they think, you know, one aspect of reading, of the value of reading is, yes, to learn useful ideas and integrate those ideas into your life but that's not all of what it is like if you read a really good book that just gives you idea one idea two idea three it's not a very good book the best books give you useful ideas but they also give you ideas that you never even considered before they present old ideas in a way that you've never considered before uh they flip things around on you they say hey this thing that you always thought was good is actually kind of bad this thing that you always thought was bad might be a little bit good stop trying to be happy exactly so it's those are the things that may like it just provides such a more enriching reading experience for people there's an essay from the 1970s called that's interesting Mm -hmm. and it's super niche it's only on a pdf like the font is all messed up you have to like zoom in on your phone like you almost have to read it on your laptop but it goes through all the different ways an idea can be interesting. And it's basically exactly really? what you were sharing. It's yeah. so good. It's just a timeless class. I should find that. Like one, you know, like one little formula is take two things. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're one. Yeah. Take something everybody thinks is one thing. Actually, they're two things. Uh, yeah. I've wondered about that before. I've noticed that there are a lot of commonalities like uh, behind the ideas that I'm most excited about and the ideas that perform the best for me, there do seem to be common threads, like inversions, like a obvious one. Um, but it'd be nice to see like just a list of them somewhere. Yeah. There's a book called The Elements of Eloquence mm-hmm. and it does this for styles of like patterns of writing and words that have things be memorable. And what I did for years was I just had the different styles. Like for example, John F. Kennedy says, Ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. Mm -hmm. And in that same speech, he goes, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Yeah. And so you just have all these little patterns. And then I was working on a video, like a little short film was called You Were Made for More Than This. And I really wanted just like a boom, bomb ending that would just hit something memorable. And so we wrote, carve the path that only you can carve. Live the life that only you can live. Mm. Write the essay that only you can write. Yeah. And it's telling that I can remember it now. Yeah. Right? Like that is... There's something with repetition. Yes. Which I learned that uh, when I was really young, I read all of... uh, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but Chuck Palinuik? Palinuik? The Fight Club guy. (laughs) Yeah. I was a huge fan of his in high school and college, and he uses repetition a lot. Like some would even say he overuses it. 
but he like he always he hits at some point in the book he's going to hit you like he'll just repeat re- phrases and words and like a bunch of different spots over and over it, it almost kind of becomes like a like a background noise to the book but there's always at least one moment in the book where it's just lands at the exact perfect spot and it's like getting hit in the stomach and you're just like oh damn that landed there's something yeah there is something about the just human psychology repetition rhythm tell me about this you have this awesome Quora piece from years ago practical writing advice and i just want to go through the different ones the first one you want quality traffic first quantity second Mm mm-hmm yeah, that that is a common mistake with people who try to build audiences online. I think they they worry about they worry about overall numbers too soon, without figuring out who they are, figuring out what really what their topic is, what they have to offer, uh, even in a lot of cases what they enjoy making. Hmm. What I have found both with myself and just most people is that the thing that you think you're going to love making actually isn't the thing you're going to love making. It's, Amen. It's something marginally related or tangential to the thing you think you're going to love making, but it, you almost always have to take a detour. And it's, I think also just, it's important to learn how to get really, really, really good at one thing before you start trying to appeal to a lot of people. We talked about read books, not other bloggers. I want to go to the next one. Writing first, design second. I think that was more about website. Today would be more, because everything's so social driven, I think today would be more writing first or content first, brand second, Hmm. right? So it's like once you figured out what is that thing that you're really good at delivering to people, then start asking yourself, okay, what's kind of the image or brand or style that I want to have on top of this? How do I want to be known in the world? What's my tagline? Shit like that. What's emerging from this is how much of your brand and what you should write about does emerge. Like you said, until you've written 100 posts, you generally have no clue what you enjoy writing about or what people enjoy reading from you. You have not developed anything close to decent writing chops, and you have no chance at ever monetizing. First of all, that sentence rips, and it is absolutely <laughs> flames. Like, that sentence is why you're Mark Manson. But second of all, it's just killer advice. Dude, it's... I can't tell you how many people meet me in person, and they're like, wow, you're so much nicer than I thought you going to be. Like, I don't know why, but my my writing has an edge to it. Yeah. Like, it just really cuts through things. Um, maybe it's like a bunch of pent-up aggression that I don't let out in real life, but... um. Yeah, that advice of write a hundred posts. So that that maybe that cuts because there's a little bit of anger in there because by that point, especially in that period, like say twenty eleven through twenty sixteen, those conferences I went to that, that I was famous at, I would get mobbed by people. Everybody's like, "How do I start a blog? How do I build a blog? You know, how do I? I got a website. How do I get people to come to my website?" And my answer was always, I would always go to their their website or their blog, or today would be a Substack. And I'd look and they have three posts. Yeah. I'm like, why are you even asking me? Like, stop wasting my time. (laughs) You haven't written anything, anything. Uh, So my answer became write a hundred posts and come back and ask me again. And I will be happy to spend as much time as you want. At first, the only people who will care about your blog will be your friends and family. 
if the, if even they don't care, well, then you're way off track. Yes. Yeah. They kind of have to care. So if you can't get them to read more than one post, uh, it's a really bad sign. You're either way off from your your competency, like what you you're good at talking about, or you're you're trying to be somebody else. You're trying to be something else, uh, and it feels very incongruent. So the people who know you see that, and they're like, oh, "This is weird," you know. Um, but yeah, I think everybody starts with that core group. You know, when I started, it was my roommates and a couple buddies. Yeah. Like those were, I had seven readers and like those seven guys were like the ones who just came back over and over again. I remember one month I had 63 page views. Yeah. And I thought I deserved a spot at the Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I was like, I really, I've, I've really made it. But that was incredible to me. Yeah. That was like two college classrooms yes. that I was speaking to. And that was really exciting. Once you cross that threshold and start reaching people that you've never met in person, it it, it is so mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing that you're like, wait, there's 50 people I've never met and they listen to things I say. <laughs> this is what I discovered when I went to music school, which is, and, and once you're there, it's unavoidable that the three or four guys who are actually going to make it in the music industry are so good, they don't really need to be in music school. Yeah. And the rest of us are just there to kind of make our parents happy or something. I don't know. But it, it within a semester, it was very clear. Like, I'm not as good as those guys. I should probably go somewhere else and do something else. What kind of music were you studying? Uh, I was studying uh, jazz performance. How does that show up in your writing? So it's funny, like all these things we've been talking about, rhythm, melody, repetition, things like that. I've always thought of writing in terms of sound. Hmm. So what you were saying about the JFK thing, yeah. Like I'm always thinking about that. Yeah. I'm like I'm always optimizing. Maybe this is why the audiobooks do so well. Hmm. Like I've always optimized my my writing for for being melodic, for for flowing, for feeling very for sounding really nice. Um and it's why my grammar kind of sucks and I flirted a little while with trying to kind of be like a public intellectual. And I realized that like my brain, I'm not detail oriented enough mm. to be excellent at that. Um, I'm very good at consuming like very intellectual content and processing it. But my output is it's so optimized for just kind of emotional experience that Anytime I tried to get like really into the weeds on a topic, it would, I'd kind of, it, it wouldn't be detailed or conscientious enough for, for all the, the nerds who like wanted to learn everything. And then it, it would be too intellectual for all the people who are just like, tell us cool shit, Mark. And, and so it just kind of made nobody happy. Well, if you take truth and resonance to their logical ex extremes, they actually begin to contradict each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so you would think just that's true, therefore that resonates. Uh, but if you actually follow them, there's a lot of times where something is super poetic and you'll read it and the emotional palette of that will just pluck your strings perfectly. And you'll be like, mm -hmm. yes, that is hitting on something I've always felt but have never been able to articulate. If you take those 
that string of sentences and you try to dissect the logic, often it'll actually make no sense yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is maybe I sometimes give up a little bit of truth so I can really go for resonance or something. Yes. And I found that, you know, when I was researching stories for my books, it's there's like a journalistic I would be a terrible journalist because it's just it's like well the truth is like I think so the Hiro Noda story in Subtle Art yeah the truth is he actually had a very complicated relationship when he went back to Japan he went to Brazil for a while then he came back to Japan and then he moved all over and he lived with his brother for a while and then he left again then he came back and it was like it's a very convoluted messy thing but the point I was trying to make it felt so impactful if he left Japan, hmm. right? And so I wrote it in a way that made it sound like he left Japan forever and never went back. I didn't say that explicitly, but it felt that way. And sure enough, a bunch of readers caught that and have emailed me over the years being like, you know, he actually went back to Japan. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's so much cooler if it sounds <laughs> like he didn't. It's like so much more impactful. You know, the reader is just like, oh. So yeah. What's your editing process like for these books? My experience writing books is it, it's almost fractal. Hmm. So there's almost like a mini book experience in and of itself with like the first three chapters, which is basically what I've discovered is chapter one is always exciting. Yeah. You're starting. You've got this brilliant idea. Oh my God, we're going to change the world. Can't wait to start. Yeah. Chapter one's easy. Chapter two, maybe, you know, the wheels are rattling a little bit engines overheating, but you're still holding things together. What I've noticed is by the time you get to chapter three, all the flaws and cracks in all your original outline are showing themselves. Things are falling apart. Wheels are coming off. Contradictions are showing up. And by the time you get to chapter four, like end of chapter three, the book is probably terrible. Hmm. And, and it's unavoidable and you realize it and you're like, oh my God, my original outline's never going to work. And so- what I've noticed is that I have to kind of refine those first few chapters, change them, rewrite them, revise them heavily, and also simultaneously kind of revamp the, the entire book's outline to kind of fix all of those early flaws that have shown up. Yeah. And so there's, there's a few rounds of rejigging stuff early on like that, and it's that part of the process. Of, this has happened every book I've written. And that part of the process is by far the least fun because by then you're like three, four months into it. The initial excitement is completely gone. You're, you're, everything seems horrible. Nothing makes sense. Your original outline is in the garbage can, but you haven't made a new one to replace it yet. And, and like, that's like the month that I crawl under my desk. And have there been moments where you're like, I don't know that I can actually get this thing together. I've I've quit on books, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've quit on, on a couple different books. Was there a moment from Settle Art or any of the other books where you were like stuck and something clicked? Yeah, with Subtle Art, it was, and it's almost always an organizational thing. Like mm -hmm. what I've found is that it's often the idea that you think the book should be organized around is actually should be a chapter. Huh. And actually one of the chapter ideas is actually the idea that the book should be organized. It, that It's usually something like that. Uh, and sometimes that can be fixed 
like I think with subtle art that kind of happened. I was able to like take, I realized that all the the chapters of the second half of the book should be bunched together at the back half of the book. Cause I think I originally start, tried to start subtle art with like chapter four or five and everything just kind of fell apart about 50 pages in. Hmm. And then I realized like, oh no, actually this should be in the middle of the book. And then we should start with these other ideas in the front. And then that made it work. And then when it clicks, like when it, when you find the solution, it all kind of clicks in the place and you have that new outline. And then you've got, usually you've thrown out maybe half of what you wrote to start out. And then the other half is kind of spread out through the outline. But once you find that, then, then you kind of, then I go through beginning to end and get that first full draft done. I see with student writers all the time, they'll have a huge bat story and whatever it is that they're saying. And you just should cut that bat story and just start with the climax. Yeah. And my question is for introductions. Do you write that at the end? Do you write it at the beginning? Do you ever take out stuff at the beginning in your articles? So, well, the articles, yes. It's funny, too, because I started doing that because a reader pointed out exactly that. What'd they say? I got it. This is a long time ago. This is probably <laughs> 2014 or something. But uh, reader emails can be really helpful. Sometimes they, yeah. I've, sometimes they could be, you know, <laughs> just an ouch. You lied to me. Yeah. But sometimes they're like, oh, that's good. Yeah. I, I used to get, uh, over the years, you know, it doesn't happen often, but it's, I'd say every year or two, I get an email that's like really insightful and helpful. And I had a guy, he emailed me, this was probably 2013, 2014. And he said, I'm a huge fan of your, your blog, but I can't help but notice if you deleted your first paragraph, he's like, he like linked all my last four posts or something. He's like, if you deleted your first paragraph in all four of these posts, all four of these articles get much better. And I went and I looked. I was like, shit, he's right. It's true. Deleted them, updated them, you know. And and so now that's something, when I write an article or a newsletter, that's something I look at. Uh, it's like, okay, is that first paragraph even necessary? With a book, it's, man, so, again, this is why I start with Scrivener. So much stuff gets moved around throughout the process that it's, I mean, who knows? It, it Nothing even remotely ends up looking like the outline. I think part of this too has to do with the nature of the topic of what I write about. Like human psychology, everything fucking relates to everything. So, so if you're talking about self-esteem and then you want to talk about confidence, well, you can easily talk about confidence and talk about self-esteem. You can talk about relationships first and then confidence, then self-esteem, or you can do self-esteem, confidence, relationships. Like you can make any of those those formats work and it can be absolutely maddening at times trying to figure out you know you have three chapters and you could literally put them in any order you want and it'll make sense anyway what's the best way to do it and so uh a lot of stories get moved you know it i think the bukowski thing that opened subtle art that was in the middle of the book in an early draft and then i was like oh this is such a cool way to open the book it like sets the tone for everything else coming like let's start with that um so yeah it's it's all over the place tell me about how you met will smith and what that project was like <laughs> so meeting will smith is not a simple no kidding <laughs> it's not a simple endeavor as you would expect um will wanted to do he wanted to do a memoir and he had known that for a while. He'd actually even, how did you find that out? They reached out to me. Oh, okay. So that's the short answer. 
the longer answer is um, he had wanted to do a memoir for a while. And, and since this is a writing podcast, this will be interesting to you. He had actually tried to write it a few times himself. Oh, wow. And what he discovered about himself was that he's really good at like kind of micro story. So if you tell him, hey, Will, tell me about the time you auditioned for Fresh Prince, he'll tell you this amazing, hilarious five-minute story. But if you ask him, hey, Will, what are the three main themes of your transition from hip-hop into acting, and how did those affect your day-to-day life? He like kind of has no idea where to start. Like he does it, it's hard for him to zoom out yep. and, and do the structural organization part. So... He was having a lot of uh, he was having a lot of trouble with that, and he roughly knew kind of what he wanted to say, what he wanted the, the main themes of the book to be. But he needed a writer to a help him structure and organize everything, and then b he, it was very important to him that the book had takeaways and life lessons and things that people could use to kind of help in their own lives. So his team reached out to me, went through this very long convoluted interview process with a bunch of people on his team after a few months i flew out and met him uh on set of one of his one of his movies hung out with him for three or four days and uh we just really hit it off like we have a very natural chemistry we both we both communicate a lot through humor Hmm. so i think we like we just instantly vibed in that way and then our personalities are very different in that like i tend to be very cynical and critical of everything and (laughs) And he, he's like, he's Mr. Everything is awesome all the time. So I think we balance each other well and we could both kind of feel that. So I spent three days with him and then he asked me, I think the last night at dinner that I was there, he asked me, he's like, so you got anything? Like got any ideas? Like we hung out for a few days now going well, like, what do you think? And I, at, by that point, I had actually kind of put together a rough outline in my head. And I had some pretty, I had some ideas that I had some pretty high conviction on. So I told him, I was like, give me, give me tonight. I'll meet you for breakfast tomorrow. I'll show you an outline. Nice. And he was like, oh, shit. All right. So ran back to my hotel room, stayed up to like 2.30 in the morning, like putting this outline together. And that was the basis of the book. Like the thing I noticed about him is just his his charisma and his just very natural understanding of emotion. And learning about his life over those few days, you could see that he had kind of gone through the full spectrum of emotions in his life. He was had a very fearful childhood. He was a very angry adolescent. Um, he had a lot of pride early on that got him in trouble. Um, he struggled with a lot of guilt later on. Um, so it, it's, he kind of, there were, there, to me, there were like these very clear theme, emotional based themes of his life in each period. And I love the idea of building an arc of his life through these emotions, beginning with fear and ending with love. Cause ultimately that's, we're all on that journey at some, in some shape or form. So I showed the, showed him that at breakfast and he immediately got up and started fist pumping and screaming, oh, hell yeah. And I was like- That must have felt so good. Yeah, I was like, oh shit, I think I got the job. <laughs> that must have felt so cool. Um, 
But in terms of actually working with him, honestly, it was the maybe the most enjoyable project I've ever done. How would you work together? Like, would you just hang out at the house? Would you go interview him, other people? So everything, all the above. So I did tons of research on my own. He, his team actually keeps an archive of like all the press that he's done over the years. So they had access to all of his interviews over his entire career. I got access to that. I got access to like all of his home movies. I got access to his full family. So I spent a couple of days with Jada. I spent a bunch of time with the kids. I met his mom. I went to Philly. I saw where he grew up. Like one of his childhood friends gave me a whole tour of the neighborhood. Um, like everything was open. And then were you taking notes at that time? Were you just, were you more of a processor? What was that like? I was taking notes. I was also taking a lot of video. Huh. Just be like, especially like West Philly, it's more just like kind of like I went to the church that he went to when he was growing up and took some pictures of it, you know, because it's like when I write that scene in the book, I, I want to be able to describe. So walk me through. I just didn't expect you to say video. That's so it's interesting. So you, video. So how do you go from video to church or a photo to church yeah. to how that shows up on a page? Well, because I want to set that setting, right? So he had a couple impactful experiences as a, ch- as a child with his grandmother and those things happened at church. So I knew I, I knew going in, I'm like, okay, the church is, it's an important place in mm-hmm. his life. Uh, so when I went there, the only thing I'm thinking is is just, I need to be able to describe this. It's really just a paragraph, right? It's like, and I think what I ended up writing was like the, cause he had told me the kind of music that they used to sing, like the gospel music. So I was like, uh, the the chorus of such and such is like reverberating off the wooden beams on the ceiling because it was like the ceiling with all these wooden beams, like these like kind of cross-stitched wooden beams in the ceiling. And I knew the name of the pastor. And so I just kind of like painted that picture really quick in like a paragraph mm-hmm. just so that you know you're you're in this like little black church in West Philly. They're singing a gospel song. He's standing next to his grandma. Like I just want to be able to get that moment on the page. Um, but that requires going to West Philly and taking a video of the church, right? Yeah. So when Robert Caro was doing his biographies of Lyndon B. Johnson and still now he's writing his last one, the thing that he does when he does interviews is he'll just sit down and he'll keep asking the question, what would I see? If I was sitting there, what would I see? What would I see? And he'll just ask it over and over and over again. And he says that if you can make the reader see the scene, that's when it comes alive. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. That's really interesting. I remember at one point I had Will sit down and draw a floor plan of his childhood home. Oh, cool. And and then like Mark where the kitchen was, where his bedroom was, where he was standing when this happened. Even things down to like, where was the couch? Where was the kitchen table? Just because it, my feeling was like, I need to be able to, like, I know he can see it in his head. I need to be able to see it in his head. I, I, when I worked with him, I always talked about it being downloading the data from his brain to mine. Yeah. And there's some- Neuralink for writing. Exactly. Like there, and there's some things you can only get that way right it's like what hey i'm working on this scene about your dad your dad's workshop 
what did it look like? You probably need a lot of time in order to do that. Yeah. Like he probably just had to give you the space because that's something I've noticed with these sorts of conversations is you don't even begin to scratch the surface until hour two or hour three. Like even this, I feel like now we're in new territory. We've been going for a little while. And I bet it was like that with Will Smith. Oh, a hundred percent. And it is, and the, that was actually one of the difficulties because it is really hard to get more than an hour with Will Smith at any given no time. Kidding. Yeah. So it was sometimes I just get like thirty or forty minutes, and yeah, you don't even get in the new territory in that amount of time. I remember actually about a year in, I told one one of his managers, I was like, "Look, like if you can't get me more than an hour, it's not even really worth me being here at this point." Um. So I kind of, I shadowed him on and off for about two years and, you know, so I would fly out to wherever he was, spend a week with him. Uh, and then I try to get a couple hours of FaceTime a day or something. And I'd have my list of questions and just dig into everything. And then usually if somebody else was around, like if one of the kids was around or Jada was around, I'd like, when he was busy doing Will Smith things, I would get a couple hours with them and kind of corroborate stuff. So it was a lot of upfront work, but um, once I sat down the right, it was actually very, I don't want to say effortless because it was a lot of work, but it flowed so easily and it was just fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. I, it was to me, it was like almost the purest form of writing because it, first of all, I, I'm getting the write about like one of the most interesting people in the world. It's my favorite actor growing up. Yeah. I hung Hitch with Albert Brenneman. That's what I like. For our generation, he was the man. There's the scene where he's with Albert and then Yeah by Usher comes on. He's sort of teaching him. It's like, and then Albert Brenneman starts going, Q-tip. Yeah. Throw it away, Q-tip, throw it away. <laughs> and my sister and I have probably watched that clip 50 times. Like even now, we'll sort of yeah. merge around the house on th- uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas and we'll just do that. Like there's so many, I robot, like yeah. there's so much from my childhood that was around Will Smith. Yeah. Um, but it was great because I got the benefit of writing this super interesting material without the drawback of all the self-doubt. You know, because when <laughs> you're writing your own stuff, you're constantly tr- trying not to evaluate, but like constantly judging like, oh man, is this going to make me look stupid or is that idea lame? Whereas in this case, he basically gave me all of his stories and all of his ideas and I got to curate. I got to be like, okay, these are the best ideas and these are the best stories and we're going to put them together this way. And and so it was just fun. It was It was a blast. What adjectives were you going for when writing that book? Mm-hmm. that were different from the adjectives that you're going for when you write your own books. Will is very bombastic. There's mm-hmm. an, there's an adjective for you. I would never use the word bombastic in my own writing. In his book, I'm sure it's in there a bunch of times. He is his personality is larger than than life. Like he is he thinks like an action hero. Like everything is huge, everything's going to be amazing, everything's the best and he loves to get very flowery with his like language. I mean, he everybody around him jokes about it all the time. He exaggerates the hell out of anything he talks about. You know, it's it's 
the joke the joke with people around him is like whatever will tells you you got to dial it back like three notches and that's probably around where the truth is um <laughs> just because he gets so excited and he's like oh there's like a thousand people there and it's like well it's actually like 80s yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> um so i i really just went for it in terms of um just enthusiasm and like intensity um I was very fortunate. So come back to the, you had a question about like how we divided up the work and decided to work together. I was very fortunate. Again, I think this is one of the reasons why he, everything went so well is he and I sat down very early in the process. And I think we were both aware of what we were good at and willing to do and what we were going to be bad at and not really willing to do. So I told him, I'm like, look, man, like you, you're a black dude from Philly, a rap star, one of the most famous people on the planet. Like, I'm never going to sound like you. I'm never going to be able to sound like you. I can try, but it's, I'm going to screw up a bunch. Yeah. You know, and he was like, that's fine. If you give me, you know, if you give me the story, I can go in and and put my flavor on it. Tell me about that. How do you do that? So, we, well, the, the conclusion we came to is uh, we did the outline together obviously all the research together. And then uh, I did the first draft. He revised his voice as a second draft and then added like details and little things here and there. Um, and then I did a third pat, like a polish pass yep. on top. So, and it worked beautifully because it, it's, there are a lot of stories because he is so charismatic and expressive and and creative with a lot of the things that he he says and writes, uh, there are a bunch of things in that book. I'm like, yeah, I would never, I would never come up with that. Yeah, that's that's totally a Will Smith thing. So he actually, this is the thing that a lot of people don't realize. He put a lot of work into that. Like it's most celebrity books. <laughs> this is actually something my agent told me when I we started the project. She said most celebrity books, uh, you're lucky if they even read it. Um, I was like, okay, thanks, <laughs> thanks for setting setting the stand. Like, now I know where the bar is. <laughs> uh, she she was like, yeah, sad but true. Um, but he he was very involved um, throughout the outlining process, and then once he had my draft, he probably spent. Um, I mean, it helped. It was during the pandemic, but he he probably spent three or four months doing his revisions. Yeah. on top of it. Nice. I want to end with this quote that you have, which I think is so good. Writer's block is usually because you're putting way too many expectations on yourself. Remove the expectations and just start writing for fun. Write as if no one is ever going to read it. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, what writer's block is, is my experience is that there is this fountain of creativity within each of us kind of this stream of ideas that is always there unless you block it with something and i think a lot of us unintentionally or unconsciously block that stream because it's like oh well they're gonna think i'm an idiot or i need to make money or i'm trying to build an audience on instagram you know wh whatever it is it, it gets blocked with all this stuff and then once it gets blocked, we're like, oh man, I don't have any ideas. It's like, well, you you put your limitations on what's acceptable is so confined to this tiny little space that like, yeah, you ran out of ideas. But if you 
remove those confines and and draw like a much wider boundary of like what's an acceptable idea to you, then they'll start coming through again. And the crazy thing about ideas is that you can start working on it. This kind of comes back to like, what is creativity? You can start working on an idea that has nothing to do with your real work. And once you've worked on it for a few hours, you realize like, oh, actually it totally relates to my mm-hmm. real work. And I could actually pull this in and like use this as a story or an example and a chapter or whatever it is. So it's that ability to just remove judgment and expectation, I think is, um, especially early in any processes, is just, it's it's an important skill to, to hone and develop. Yeah, in Rite of Passage, we have this idea called a right from conversation. Mm-hmm. And the premise is that if you get people to go from trying to type something smart to just talk to their friends in conversation, things will just emerge that yeah. they naturally want to talk about. And the metaphor I can't get out of my head is, you ever see that video of the, where the gorilla walks through the video yes. and people are like bouncing the basketballs? Yeah. I feel like so often the reason that people can't find good ideas is because they're trying to like count the basketballs while the gorilla is just right <laughs> there. And like the great idea is often so obvious, so close and right in front of you yes. that you almost can't even see it because you're trying to look for a good idea. And the reason why in Rite of Passage, we talk about, no, right from conversation, right from conversation, right from conversation is because the things that just naturally come out of your mouth in conversation, you're hanging out with friends, buddies, whatever it is, those are the things that then you can bring into your writing and your stuff then flows because it's natural. It's actually coming from the heart. Yeah. And it's relatable too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. This was like the easiest interview ever <laughs> and a damn good time. I'm glad glad to make your life easy. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. Yeah.